Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Send in a bloody email. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Whoa. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Announcement! Announcement! Just a little announcement at the top of the episode to remind you to check out our YouTube channel. Go to YouTube, search for Our Three Cents, you can find us there. You can also check out our Instagram channel, at O3C Podcast. Do please subscribe and follow those things, that would mean a huge deal to us. We also have a Patreon page. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash our3cents and find a whole amazing smattering of classic perks, such as custom artwork, access to the exclusive Discord channel, which is just wonderful, and access to deleted scenes and full bonus episodes. So do please check that out. So this week we have our... 11th favourite video games. It's only the bloody finale of season two, guys. What? Oh my goodness. Mm. I know. Oh my goodness. Yeah, we're already here. We've only, we've only gone and shitting done it, haven't we? We've only gone <laughs> and done a bloody shit, haven't we? Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, absolute classic. Uh, this is, I mean, this is, this is great. This is great. But before we get into all of that, it's time to return to the quiz where it is after after just an absolute roller coaster of like 90 episodes it's just gone it's gone up and down and in and out and it's done the hokey cokey it's turned around and now it's level again oh. so let's see again. who's going to go into season 3 with a one point advantage god i hope it's me in what year was the sony playstation 2 released Two- oh, 2001 uh-huh. What did you say, Chris? I was going to say 2000, but that's wrong. 2000 is the correct answer. Is it? Wow. It is. Oh, oh. God. I, I was convinced Mincy had that. And, and, yeah. oh. <laughs> so was I. Oh, I was boy. very sure of myself. Yeah, it's 2000, according to this card. So the point does oh. go to Christopher Dow. Season two leader by one well. measly point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't really count for much though. Don't worry, Minty. There's uh, there's plenty of time. I mean, well, less time, but still plenty to make it up. Ten ten more times. Oh, I know, I know. Uh, at least. Okay, so what have you guys been playing this last week, Minty? What have you been doing? Uh, not a whole lot. Um... The firebreak has ended, so I have been back at work. Yes, of course. That's but a shame. What have I, well, what have I been playing? Just, I've, I've cracked on with Yonder a little bit. Uh huh. Um, making slow progress, um, partly because I don't really know what I'm doing still. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> um, wandering around. Yeah. Speaking of wandering around, I'm also trying to find all the footprints in the Pokemon Shield DLC. Footprints? There are some footprints. I have not discovered this bit yet. That's exciting. Ah, yeah. That's uh, exciting. Well, I'm not gonna, well, yeah, I'm not going to say any more about it then. Well, yeah. I still haven't found all the diglets from... Uh, condoms. From the first bit of DLC. Little condom. Yeah. Mm. Little condom. <laughs> I forget that you're going to be editing this episode, Chris, so you can keep all your absolute shit in. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Goodness me. I uh, I have played uh, a bit more of the Crown Tundra. I uh, had a bit of a sesh on that last night uh, because I've been trying to tie up a few loose ends because, well, you never guess what's happened in the last week, guys. Tell us. What? I've only become a bloody dad, haven't I? Oh, bloody father oh. done. Big daddy boy. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, after an absolutely just incredible performance from Mrs. Dunn going through labour and birth, like, I'm in absolute awe of that woman. I I mean, she's she, she blows my mind every day in how incredible she is, but my fucking goodness was that it was the, just the most incredible thing. It was the most incredible thing. Um... So I've got a couple of days uh, at the moment whilst um, my wife and my daughter are being kept in the hospital for monitoring, which is uh, all, all absolutely fine and sort of expected. Um, so I'm trying to tie up a lot of loose ends, which includes building a pram, fitting a car seat. Um, beating the Pokemon DLC. <laughs> beating the Pokemon DLC, uh, <laughs> handing over my work and all of that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, sort of, I've done, uh, done a whole lot of, uh, of, of excellent... Um, fatherly, husbandly chores yesterday, and then sat down in the evening, uh, whacked on a bit of the American office, and uh, and decided to try and uh, get through a bit more of the Crown Tundra, which um, uh, which is great. I've got I've got all the Galarian forms of the legendary birds. I've got the Reggies. I've done Calyrex, um, and I uh, oh, had a, had a go at one of the Dynamax adventures uh, last night with a with a group online just a group of randoms online where we were trying to catch uh wyvertel the uh the the legendary from pokemon y which okay. we failed to do which uh, was a shame because uh, we just got right so close so close to the end and then didn't get it but that's a shame but i know that the ultra beasts are appearing in there now as well and it's, it's really it's really good it like i know that i was not sold on dynamaxing and gigantamaxing uh, before the game came out and i remember when when it did come out saying how much of like an event it made of pokemon battles and it was it was it's it's it is it feels really really good and like i think you said minty it's the closest pokemon's come to having like boss battles yeah and it's yeah. it's just it's very good and the dynamax adventures are such a great form of that like yeah so it's um yeah really 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 good fun really good fun and uh, yeah, I I, did, I confess I've missed my first day of Animal Crossing. Um, oh my of, goodness! Uh, I know, I know, I know. But I, I did check in yesterday and made sure to catch uh, the 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 last of the month's fish and sea creatures that I hadn't got. I managed to I managed to get those, so I got myself a snow crab and a spiny lobster and a blowfish. So, uh, so that's all done. So it means I've got a couple of weeks before I uh, try and crowbar in some December Animal Crossing <laughs> uh, playtime in amongst uh, um, baby stuff. Did you leave a little note on the message board in the Animal Crossing uh, island just to let them know that there is a, <laughs> a new daughter on the way? I did not. I did not, but I should. I should, should. and I shall. That's a nice I, I idea. I think your, your residents would that. like to know. I think they would. I think they would too. I think they would too. Um, so yeah, I've, I've no idea what my uh, relationship with games is, is going to become. Uh, certainly over the next few weeks whilst I'm on paternity leave and uh, handing the reins of this podcast over to, uh, to you two fine gents to, uh, to, to, uh, well, to entertain um, these wonderful listeners that we have. Um, 
I imagine that I'm probably not going to be able to play a, a massive amount, but hopefully come next next year when I'm back at work, I'll be able to sort of diarise some some time to uh, to pick up some games again and uh, and and carry on. And I'm, I must say, I I am not so much coveting a next gen console as I am desperate to play Demon Souls on the PS5. Yeah. Uh, that's 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 going to be the game that that makes me get a PS5. Um so yeah, we'll see we'll see. I'll see where I'm at in uh, in January when it comes to that, but uh <laughs> yeah, potentially that could be uh that could be my my return as it were. How about you Chris? What's your last week consisted of? Any uh had any children or I <laughs> 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 uh, just just, just just, just, just me, was it? Just me? In, uh, in, yeah, in stark contrast to you two. I killed a child. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah diff- differently to you two, I, I, have not, uh, I have not birthed or been part of the birth of a child. And mm. England is still under lockdown for the next few weeks. So whereas Wales, course, where you yeah. are, has, has opened up from your, your fire break, we're still going. So this weekend has been just inside whilst it pissed with rain outside. So the only activity yeah. we can do, just having a nice walk, has been been rained off as well. So oh. I, I've spent the weekend um, beating Yonder to 100% with Georgia. Oh, well done. Being really honest, the last 10% has been a real slog. Um, <laughs> like we, we probably spent three or so hours fishing to fill out our collection of fish. Wow. Then, then it was about five or so hours finishing the final quest. And that's because yeah. it was an insane task that involves finding 55 of the island's cats. Oh my. Cats are like, they're, they're a collectible that I thought little of until they were the subject of this quest. Yeah. And, and basically they just sit in different places around the map. When you get close to them, you hear a little kind of purring sound. Uh, it's meant to be kind of like an organic collectible you just stumble upon. But at this stage, it's like, okay, you need 55 of these things. And there's there's no marker on the map to help you. There's there's no kind of like item that leads you in the right direction. You're just expected to to find them, and and as part of that, it makes it much tougher as well because the game has like a functional kind of season and time system, and some cats will only come out at midnight, and some cats will only come out in the summer, and things like that. And it means that even with a guide from the web, we just had to sit and wait for seasons to pass. Okay. Sometimes the game doesn't run in real time. No, no. Otherwise, that would, <laughs> okay, that would be a real Animal Crossing nightmare. <laughs> but no, it's, yeah. it's kind of like each day is probably like 15, 20 minutes long. And each season really? is about six or seven days. So by no, the end okay. of it, we needed three or four cats. And that spanned three seasons of the game. <laughs> so we, oh, wow. we kind of had it playing in the background whilst we made some food and, and whilst we sort of you know totted around doing other stuff. But it, it was a real grind at that point. So it's done. Uh, I, I think as a game, I, I still recommend it. Like I really recommend the first 20 hours, say, as being like a cuddly, soft, free-form, combat-free open world. But I would really consider whether or not you're the type of player that needs to finish things 100%. Because I think if I just stopped at the point where the credits rolled, I would have gone, yeah, loved it, great. But as because I sort of forged on and tried to mop up these extra bits, that's what's kind of soured the experience a bit on the, on the tail end. The uh, the cat tail end? Uh, well, yeah. what? Shut ooh, up. Ooh. Well, no, cut that. The other game I've given like a very <laughs> tiny bit of time to this week was a revisit of my 90th favorite video game, Halo, because I, oh, I picked up the I picked up the Master Chief collection on Steam. Of course. And yeah. it includes the first six titles in the Halo series, like more Halo have you, than have you anyone not got needs. Game Pass. Well, I was going to come on to that. Game Pass, I do have it on there, but Game Pass has become very similar to how I was treating Apple Arcade, where it was just in the background and became like a monthly tax instead of something I was actually using to to play games. I understand. So, yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I just feel better about it being in a library that is a, like a, a persistent thing as opposed to 
like an ethereal thing that I don't have like constant access to potentially. So I, I paid for it, I picked it up, and it's just been nice to go back and, and play a few stages of the first game. Excellent, excellent. How about that? So, shall we move on to the rankings? Let's do it. We're flying today. Let's do it. Yeah. Starting this week, we have my game. Jonathan Dunn. My game. Top of the episode. Here we go. Yeah. Rubbing yeah. my hands Here we together. Go. It's going to be good. Well, it's all right. It's okay. Um, it's not Pharaoh. Or is it? Well, many things aren't. <laughs> <laughs> when, when you think about it, everything, everything that exists either is or isn't the video game Pharaoh. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of the great <laughs> philosophical questions of our age, isn't it? It is. It is. I read it on the back of a matchbox. So over the last couple of weeks, I've been acutely aware of how I need to justify placing certain games in my top 10 so high. Games that may not objectively be better than some of the games I've already featured in my list. You know, so-called perfect games such as The Witness or Animal Crossing or Inside or more concrete technical milestones like... Mario 64 or Panzer Dragoon Saga, how can I reason games being placed higher than these? But there's a reason why I wanted these lists to be about our favourite games rather than be an objective best games of all time because personal context and personal experiences that go hand in hand with these games is, is well, it's a much more fascinating conversation piece for a start. And, you know, I wanted to create a space to celebrate some of the games that might not ever be on IGN's greatest games of the decade or something similar. You know, you're not going to find games like Jurassic Park on the Game Boy or Machinarium or Proteus or Pickpick or even Pharaoh on Minty's list that appeared last week. I've never seen that on one of these lists. But that absolutely does not mean that their validity to be celebrated as wonderful games is compromised because of what they mean to us. And when I've called into question my own judgment of some games recently, you know, how could I possibly place Animal Crossing outside my top 10? How, how can you? was, you know, The Witness or Inside <laughs> not in my top 10 when I designate them perfect games? So we've spoken recently about the extraordinary development of games on the Game Boy throughout that console's lifetime. About how the Game Boy started as home to fairly rudimentary arcade games that were... Incredibly simple in scope, sparse on art assets, but dense in replayability. And then when you look at the end of the Game Boy's life and, and subsequent merging into the, into the Game Boy Color, we see enormous games such as Link's Awakening and Pokemon Red, Blue and Yellow, and Game Boy Color games like Dragon Warrior Monsters and Harvest Moon. Uh, you know, they were still backwards compatible with the original Game Boy as well, or, or Grand Theft Auto. And <laughs> <laughs> what a stinker. I mean... It's a dreadful game, but huge. Yeah. And who would have thought you could yeah. have got Grand Theft Auto in some form on, on the Game Boy? Because you could play that on the original Game Boy. That is mad. 10 out of 10 for effort. Yeah. Yeah, why not? <laughs> 1 out of 10 for execution. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, games started to move away from the dual compatibility, and we started to see the clear plastic cartridges of games that were designated only for Game Boy Color. And the small extra level of power and detail that the Game Boy Color offered developers led to even bigger games being developed. And we would start to see sequels to some of those original Game Boy games that had already pushed the limits so much. And so we come to my game this week. I think this game is a solid 10 out of 10 game. It's a real 
hidden gem of a game that I, I rarely see in these top 100 games lists because it's overshadowed by other games in its series. Games that have already featured on my list, as it happens, several, several times. <laughs> but this game is, I think, the most ambitious game to grace the Game Boy Color because it wasn't just one game. It was one uh-huh. of a set Ooh. of two epic adventures that could be enjoyed separately, but became something altogether more extraordinary when played as one linked, continuous Ooh. adventure. <laughs> my 11th favourite video game is The Legend of Zelda Oracle of Ages. There we go. This was released as a Game Boy Color exclusive. It used a lot of the same art assets as, as Link's Awakening, but in full color and with a whole load more aspects to the game to elevate it over Link's first handheld outing. And like I said, it was released as a dual release alongside Oracle of Seasons. The two games focused on different aspects of gameplay, with ages being more focused on puzzling and seasons being more focused on action. And this was back in a time when I was a young boy, uh, just a wee lad, and couldn't afford to buy, you know, both games. So I thought I would be more at home with the less intense puzzling adventure and, and opted to ignore Oracle of Seasons for the time being and focus my money, time and energy on Oracle of Ages. Now, the games were originally planned as a trilogy of releases, with, with each game focusing on a different attribute of the Triforce, and the game's would have been known as the mystical seed of courage, wisdom, and power. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not entirely sure, you know, what happened, but developmental issues, I guess, re- resulted in them being boiled down into just two adventures. And so the, the themes of ages and seasons revolved around, well, obviously, time and the seasons. And the puzzling aspect of ages echoes the wisdom side of the Triforce, and the power side of the Triforce is reflected in seasons' more action-heavy elements. So in Oracle of Seasons, you've got a wand that would allow you to cycle through the different seasons, which would alter the state of the environment to add a whole other level of puzzling to the adventures. And in Oracle of Ages, you had a magical harp that would allow you to travel between the past and the present. And you were able to interact with things in the past that would then alter things in the present, which is it's just immensely cool. And these games came out after Nintendo had already broken new ground with the series moving into 3D with Ocarina of Time and then rebroken that solid ground again with Majora's Mask, a game we've heard a fair bit about recently. And so this was the first time Nintendo returned to the traditional 2D Zelda, which which is, I mean, it's quite a landmark. Obviously, they they went on to do more of this with, like, you know, the Minish Cap, uh, Phantom Hourglass, Spirit Tracks, and then A Link Between Worlds. And between me and Minty, we, we've spoken about these games and talked about, you know, the new elements they introduced to the series and how they pushed the style of the series forward. But Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons was the first opportunity for Nintendo to implement a lot of advancements they'd made in the series since Link's Awakening. And in these games, we saw the increased scope and epic adventure and storytelling on a grand scale that came with Ocarina of Time, coupled with a lot of the time manipulation, complex, multi-layered puzzling elements of Majora's Mask. And these games do serve as a canonical sequel to A Link to the Past and Link's Awakening until they then sort of backtracked and put A Link Between Worlds and Triforce Heroes in the timeline between them as well. I mean, the whole timeline thing is, I say again, bully crud. But (laughs) it is... But it is quite nice to feel like you're still on this enormous adventure following on from the Oracle's 2D ancestors. And it also included characters from the N64 games as well, with like the Gorons and the Zoras being featured more prominently. 
appearances from Tingle, the Happy Mask salesman, and for the Twin Rover witches from Majora's Mask, featuring as the, the mastermind behind the evil that's going on. An element of the story, actually, that only really became apparent and fleshed out when you played the epilogue of the game after linking the two games together. And you would also then encounter Ganon as well. I mean, like a really satisfying ending, especially after having gone through the tedious rigmarole of entering a 500 character password to transfer <laughs> your data, which is just one of the ways that you could link the two games together. So let's talk about this, this linking games malarkey. It's an incredibly advanced mechanic that they implemented here, albeit exercised through fairly crude <laughs> mechanics. So, so you could play through either game first, and then you could link the game to the other one via a, a long and complicated password that you entered manually, or by using a link cable between two systems with a, a game in each. And then you would play through the second game, which would be altered in a few ways to then serve as a direct continuation and sequel of the previous game. And that's, that's incredibly clever. There are so many elements that can be carried over. Uh, there's a lot of complex relationships and elements in the game, S similar to what Minty spoke about in the Minish Cap with the Kinstones mechanic, where you have to find the owners of the other half of a medallion that would then reward you with various different things. In this game, you could do various things to enable you to receive a magic ring from various characters in the game. Yeah. And there were 64 magic rings to collect spread between the two games, some of which you could only obtain by playing a linked game. Some you could only get by playing through the game on a Game Boy Advance instead of a Game Boy Color. And, and, and these magic rings augmented the game in various ways, lending like a real RPG edge to the game such as like having rings to increase sword power or reduce damage or make you swim faster or stop you slipping on ice. And, and, and even some to make the game harder as well if you wanted an additional challenge. And one of the ways you would find magic rings in, in this game was, um, oh, in both games, I think, actually, was by finding special seeds known as Gasha seeds. And in Oracle of Ages, if you, if you planted these in certain places in the past, in the present... They would have grown into a tree, bore fruit, and inside the gasher nuts would be various rewards, such as rupees or, or magic rings. Or in Oracle of Seasons, you could advance through the seasons to pass time to allow them to grow, I think. This is just one of the things that revolved around the passing of time in the game. There were also things like landscape factors that would change in different time frames, mountains not yet collapsed in the past, rivers that would freeze in winter to allow you to walk across them, things like that. And it was always really fun to think a bit more laterally about your environment and also made you want to experiment with the time shifting mechanics to see how certain areas would change. There was even a, a couple who had a child in the game who would grow as you advanced through time as well, which was great. I mean, just like just wonderful stuff. And another wonderful thing that was in the game were your rideable animal buddies. Again, a mechanic that is incredibly advanced for a handheld game. I mean, least of all, trying to manage the size and complexity of the sprites. So there was Ricky, the kangaroo, and you could jump in his pouch and use his massive boxing gloved fists to twat things out of the way. <laughs> and he could also jump up ledges. Then there was uh, Dimitri, the friendly Dodongo, who could swim up waterfalls. And I think you could even get him to, to curl up into a ball and then use the power bracelet to pick him up to throw him across gaps, which was quite cool. But my, my personal favourite was Moosh the bear, who was this big old blue bear who had a tiny little pair of wings on his back, which would allow him to flutter briefly in the air to help you traverse gaps and holes and the like. And what you know, whilst you would interact with all of these guys in the game, you 
you also eventually uh, have to choose between just one of them and, uh, and and choose one of their summoning flutes, which you get, uh, and, and that will change how you tackle the rest of the game. And, and this choice is then transferred over between the games as well for, like, additional continuity. So uh, Capcom is who made the games, which is obviously a studio with incredible heritage. And I, I read, read up some stuff about the development of the game, and the wonderful thing that they did is they, they prioritised the story for the game ahead of anything technical. Once they had the story, they then built and developed the characters. And only at that point did they start making the maps and the levels and they would be changing these and tweaking them and adjusting them with like the whole map, the whole world map changing almost daily. And you can really feel that, that the, the focus of the game is, is not on uh, what they could do with the, uh, you know, w- with the handheld. What could they, what new things could they do? It was, it was about always coming back to what, what, would, what would tell the best story and what would be the, the most exciting adventure. And yet the ambition of the area designs in the game felt entirely uninhibited in oracle of seasons you could go to the goron village where where it's like the subterranean village where the entire setup of the game would change different environmental rules taking in consideration lava and fire and you even have your currency swap out from rupees to some sort of rock-based moolah which is quite fun and, and and the dungeon designs in oracle of ages in particular you know they were really leaning into the puzzling forte of this entry they were incredible like a particular highlight for me was the seventh dungeon. So a moment I often fear in any Zelda game is when you inevitably come to a water-themed <laughs> dungeon because that would involve changing water levels and all of that bullshit. But the least you can hope for is that you get the dungeon early on so it will be a bit more simple and get it out of the way. This was not the case in Oracle of Ages as the seventh dungeon was inside Jabu Jabu's belly. Oh, Jabu Jabu! location Jabu. seen in Ocarina of Time. I know that one. Exactly. Oh, yeah. even me. Trump friend. <laughs> and, and it was enormous, detailed, complex water dungeon where the water could be raised throughout the whole dungeon through three different levels. There are two quite large side-scrolling sections in the dungeon as well, one of which housing the dungeon's mini-boss fight. Like, how do you make this work on a tiny little ruddy handheld machine? <laughs> Like, they, they, they absolutely nail it. You could keep track of, of where you were fairly easily. You know, the dungeon layout allowed you to move between sections fairly quickly by swimming up and down through holes in the floor or by falling down them if that area wasn't flooded at that particular moment. And it was just an absolute joy to play. And it felt like you were playing something from 10 years down the line in terms of technical capability on a handheld. Just like, I mean, absolutely extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. There isn't... I, I do not understand how they were able to do this, just in terms of design and thinking about what was possible and doing the most with what was possible. They absolutely smash it out of the park. I mean, there is, I mean, there's so much in the game and, and, and in both games that, that broadens the scope of the game. And so the adventure feels significantly, I mean, significantly bigger than Link's Awakening, which is more of a simpler, smaller chamber piece of a game. Like, the, the the downside of having a more sprawling adventure is that I, I didn't feel like I got the full sense of the game until I played Oracle of Seasons at a much later date. And I could be wrong, but I don't think I've ever actually played through the two games linked together. And, I mean, I've read about it. I've played through both games. I know them both fairly well. 
but I don't think I've ever actually managed to get round to linking one to the other and playing through them in that way. And so I've never managed to play through the epilogue of the game. I've seen it being played on, on YouTube and all of that stuff. And yeah, I really, I really, really do want to, to do that. I've got them both on the 3DS Virtual Console. I don't know how the linking of the two games works with that. I mean, I'm, if there's there's probably still like the, um, the, the password system. Um, so if in doubt, I can just <laughs> type that out and uh, <laughs> and copy that over piecemeal style and uh, and do it. And yeah, I would like to do that. I would like to do that someday. But pff, I mean, goodness knows when that. that I, I was going to say, in, in the next few weeks of having a, a young child, it's probably not the best time to propose this kind of game. <laughs> probably won't start that. No, probably probably not. Probably not. Um, but I can I can safely say that it's the biggest grandest and most sprawling adventure you can have on the Game Boy Color. And if you haven't played these games, then you're really missing out on a real gem of a Zelda experience. So, yeah, I would encourage anyone to hunt them down and play them uh, and then keep your fingers crossed for a similarly styled remake on the Switch that they did with Link's Awakening. I mean, yes, please. I would love that. I mean, yeah, they're amazing. Absolutely amazing games. But Oracle of Ages in particular, my highlight my 11th favorite video game of all time lovely i've got them both on my 3ds which is uh, in a cupboard somewhere <laughs> i don't know why i haven't played them that much because the little i did play was yeah was stellar really really good yeah yeah like i said i mean like it, it they came out just uh towards the end of the game boy color's life and i think they might have even come out after the Game Boy Advance had come out, so people were jumping over to that, you know, and um, I mean, g given the fact that they'd programmed in Game Boy Advance compatibility into the games for, to unlock certain things, you know, shows that they um, uh, they were expecting <laughs> people to have moved on a console generation, uh, so it was a weird timing, it was, they are very much, I think, you know, a swan song for the Game Boy Color, but I think because of that, it wasn't as exciting that as playing Super Mario Brothers 2, apparently, <laughs> on the Game Boy Advance. <laughs> That's in your top 10, though, isn't it? Obviously. Yep. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that you'd love them, Minty. I, I, I can say that very, very safely. Good, good. Very safely, indeed. Well, maybe, maybe I will play them, then. How'd you like that? I would love that. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> So, moving on, we have Minty's game. Minty, can you please tell us about your 11th favourite video game of all time? Yes, yes, yes I can. Something I've been thinking about a lot is how when you get stronger in video games, it's usually in a very British way. It's, it's calm, it's restrained, and it's done the proper way. This collectible gives you uh, more health in small increments. Here's a sharper sword. The bullets in this new gun are better for killing. Here's a cloak that can stop the bite of a wolf, etc. It's a very <laughs> gradual progression from like nearly getting killed by a rat to kicking the shit out of a god. <laughs> it's always very satisfying when you think back over how far you've come over the course of the game. Or even in the late stages of a story where you're stripped of your powers in some sort of villainous subterfuge and you're on your own in a very high level area trying to find your, your gear or whatever, really helps you appreciate what you have and who your friends are. Hmm, that you've made along the way. Hmm. Uh, today's game is nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, it, it is most of the time, but all bets are off for the progression of your survivability. You're not swapping out weapons for the next sort of upgraded version or donning a new hat and shoes. Everything you collect is added to your arsenal, and if they work a little bit too well together and manage to just destroy hordes of enemies with a single button <gasps> press in the first few minutes of the game, uh, then all the better. This was my very first uh, indie game, one that was made in Flash, if you can believe that. I can. I can well. believe yeah, it. <laughs> I, knew, I knew nothing about this game until I saw, just saw a trailer for it pretty much on accident, um, which in turn ver explained very little about the game itself. But in about a minute and a half has been unsurpassed in capturing the very essence of a game and the mood of it. It's a game that uses uh, snowballing as its core mechanic and one that has snowballed as a little franchise now. It's the original Binding of Isaac. Whee! Yeah. The original, original, original. Lovely. Released furtively on Steam in 2011, this strange and sad little game has you fleeing your fanatical mother <laughs> before she kills you. Nice, uh, nice, nice cheery um, synopsis. <laughs> Escaping through your basement, you run further and further, deeper and deeper until you're confronted uh, with the devil himself. Instead of weapons, you fight enemies by firing your tears at them. And all you have to arm yourself is just little bits of tat and shit you find <laughs> along the way that make you sadder. Quite literally. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of powering you up, they'll make you sadder, they'll make you sicker, or have some sort of weird uh, religious significance. Uh, for example, the, the corpse of your pet cat gives you nine lives because uh, cat. <laughs> onions make you cry. Yeah, we know this. We know this about onions. So if you find one in the basement, it makes you fire out your tears quicker. There's there's even a Ouija board um, that turns up sometimes as well. That'll give you like a really scary ghost face and let your tears pass through solid objects. And all these things work together. You're not swapping them out for each other. So you can end up in this instance with a Gatling gun of ghostly tears powered by onions and cat. <laughs> cat. <laughs> I'm I'm not I'm not for a second saying that the the the, the Flash Binding of Isaac is better than the than the remake. Um, that would be insane. <laughs> Rebirth is a polished realization of the original, and it's nearly flawless in execution and balance. But the context in which I first encountered uh, the original makes it incredibly special to me it's a it was a first step into the near limitless potential of an entire cosmos of games made by plucky teams of passionate and sometimes even amateur developers so yeah where where would we be without the, those those first steps into broader and brighter worlds <laughs> I also much prefer the uh, the compact clarity of the, I guess, the iconography of the original game. As I mentioned um, in, uh, definitely in Afterbirth Plus, there's a bit of sort of item bloat. There's, a, a bit? Yeah, <laughs> just, a, just a slice. Just, it's a veritable hippo. <laughs> yeah, it's just a... Just a... Yeah. <laughs> 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 With the item bloat, I've often lamented in later iterations of the game, there comes a weird muddiness uh, to the symbolism of 
the the Isaac verse, I guess. By the time I stopped playing uh, Afterbirth Plus, you didn't know um, whether it was it was all a dream, whether he was uh, he was crazy, or you know whether it was just him using his imagination to cope with the fact that he was in a um, in a, a domestically abusive situation. And I think the real uh, the, the real tightness of the item pool and all the items that you can get these are just mundane things they're not um silly things like uh, like a, a sprinkler with an eyeball on it um, <laughs> they're just things that you find in your house you can find them um you, you can find a knife in the kitchen you can like, there might be maybe a knife that's fallen through the floorboards in the basement that's something that you you could feasibly find um you know if you're crawling about underneath your house i think it's that sort of that believability of the things you find um, just elevated a notch through the imagination of a child who is coping with some um, with, with quite a traumatic event. It gives it a real tightness, which I really love. Um, I mean, Afterbirth Plus is already on my list, and Repentance will probably take its place when it finally comes out. Oh yeah, um, it's great now that it's all gussied up. But the original, such a perfect little thing. It's a delicious, mournful little morsel that showed me you don't need an established team working on a beloved franchise to produce good games. There's so many out there. And I really love and appreciate the original Binding of Isaac for sort of planting that that seed and that drive to just take the plunge on little things that could turn out to be rubbish, but, you know most of the time are very good because they're made by people who uh, just love what they're doing it's good and it's nice and it's also um what started me buying indie games as well so i appreciate it for that that's brilliant wonderful wonderful i remember when we lived together seeing you playing it on your laptop a lot yeah and i believe the the sentiment i expressed when looking at it is I can't see any element of that game that makes me want to play it. Famous last words. Yep. <laughs> we'll come to come to understand why at a, at a date later in the future. I mean, I, I was similar to you, Minty. I, I saw a, a trailer for the original Barney of Isaac, I don't know where, on, on some games website. I imagine it was probably covered because, obviously, Ed McMillan had had success with Super Meat Boy uh, and people were just kind of like latching on to what he was going to do next. Um, but I, I was drawn mm. in the same way. I, I downloaded that as soon as it came out on Steam and obviously have not had the same storied history with the game that, that you both have. But I, I really loved it. Uh, and uh, yeah, all, all the things you say about how how sort of compact, but how, uh, you know, the, the game snowballs as you play um, was, was there from the start. And, and as much as that might have gone a bit overboard as, as it's developed. I think the the core of what makes that game so fun to play was always there from from the initial flash release onwards. It, I mean, it was the first. I mean, it was the first roguelike that I played. It was my first introduction to uh, to, to that genre or subgenre of games as well. Like you know, and it's 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 a difficult thing to understand until you play. Uh, like you were saying, Minty, about like the game not being not having a huge apocalyptic threat. The stakes aren't necessarily incredibly high because well for one you don't know if the story of the game is happening in reality or in the imagination uh, of the child but also because if you die you can just do it again 
So the stakes can't be that high because the worst it can get is that you die and you try again. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, and that's something that I didn't, I just couldn't really comprehend really. I think when I first saw it, just being like, well, what's the point then? What's the point? What's the point? <laughs> the point. The point. The point is to play and have fun. Exactly. exactly. The point is to play and have fun. So, finally, we have Christopher Dow's 11th favourite video game of all time. The final game of, of season two. Yeah, yeah. Bring this, bring this season on home. It better be good. It better not be a fucking Mega Drive game. <laughs> Writing this, I, I looked back over our, our collective lists. And, and over these two seasons worth of episodes, I've noticed something pretty stark about my personal choices, especially compared to both of yours. Um, I'm not big on story. <laughs> I don't, don't seem to play a lot of games about story there's lots of games on my list that have storylines of course um, but in most cases I couldn't tell you what they were <laughs> because the thing that made the title list worthy for me was usually another facet of the experience yeah. so for example going back it's things like okay Portal has a story quite a well revered story but I enjoyed the puzzles more than anything else um, Something like Halo like, that I mentioned in this episode, obviously that, that universe has become its own extended canon thing that no one gives two shits about. But I, I played it and enjoyed <laughs> it because of the, the combat loop, like the actual feel of fighting. Um, Xenoblade Chronicles X, it, it has a story running through it, but I enjoyed it for, for the traversal and the exploration. Even something like Metal Gear Solid, I, I couldn't tell you what happens in that story. <laughs> but I, I appreciated the game because it's it's use of like cross media genre conventions, and I think it's really special for that reason. Thinking about this list honestly, the the only games I can see so far where story was the defining characteristic of my enjoyment of them are Life is Strange, um, yeah. Firewatch, uh, Panzer Dragoon Saga, and Kentucky Route Zero. Yeah, that that's four games out of ninety for me. <laughs> um, but today we're going to make that five as we roll on to number eleven. Huge work because today's game is Tim Schafer and LucasArts point-and-click adventure game, Full Throttle. Full Throttle. Never heard of Full it. Full Throttle. Never heard of it. Have you not? No. <laughs> oh, it's really good. And I'm going to tell you why. Amazing. <laughs> I've mentioned in passing before that I had a friend at primary school whose family all worked in IT. And as a result, they always had like a cavalcade of PC games to play when I visited. So it's where I first saw and played Doom. It's where I first saw Command & Conquer. It's where I first saw Jazz Jack Rabbit. It's where I first played on Coral Draw, <laughs> you know, all this sort of stuff. But the games I enjoyed most back then were point-and-click games. Now, as a child, naturally, when I was six or seven years old, I was not very good at point-and-click games because titles of this era like Day of the Tentacle or, or Monkey Island or Sam and Max or the two Indiana Jones games, they were really hard. Or at least they felt hard because they require a very specific understanding of kind of the logic that drives a point-and-click game. So they have, you know, puzzles that are built around combining items in kind of, you know, odd ways. They need you to revisit locations. They need you to expend dialogue trees. But playing any of these games with my friend was never really about making progress back then, but rather just about being inside a cartoon world that I felt like I was directing. And that's what I really loved, like especially the games that had voice acting as part of the experience. A few years on, when my family got our own home computer, one Christmas, I got a double pack of games uh, that included The Dig, which was a Steven Spielberg-devised sci-fi point-and-click adventure, and Full Throttle, and they were both on the same disc. And even though I was now in my early teens, The Dig was still too hard. <laughs> like, I, I did understand how point-and-click titles worked a little bit better now, 
but the puzzles were confusing and, and the game seemed to open up just a little bit too quickly across the, the alien planet it takes place on. And it made keeping track of where items were really confusing, made keeping track of locations really confusing. So it has a great atmosphere, an okay story, but kind of mixed design, which meant I never really got into it. But Full Throttle, on the other hand, was perfect for me. Like it had everything I loved about early point and click games, but it felt very much tailored to my skill set because the puzzles, while still challenging, were just that bit more grounded. Um, as an aside, like thinking about this game for this episode and doing a bit of research online, I, I never played a title from the Gabriel Knight series of, of point and click games, but in revisiting and researching for, for this entry, I found a long discussion on one particular puzzle in that game that really sells why the simplified approach of Full Throttle is so much more enjoyable for me. <laughs> so I, I will just basically read this verbatim of how this, this <laughs> puzzle is solved. In Gabriel Knight 3, you are tasked with impersonating another man in order to take his motorcycle rental. To do this, you must put a piece of masking tape on a fence post, scare a cat using a hose so that it brushes against the tape to collect its fur, you must then find maple syrup to adhere this to your face as a fake moustache, before orchestrating a long-winded way of stealing the man's ID, only to find that in his picture he is not mustachioed, <laughs> which necessitates you finding a marker pen to adapt the identification to match your new disguise. It's it's farcical. Yeah. <laughs> like, that, that kind of internal logic is, is too much. It's too much. And I think it's very much built around that idea of needing like a tip line, like early NES games, to get through. Puzzles in Full Throttle never run you around like this. One of the hardest puzzles for me, at least when I was that age, comes quite early on when you need to collect some gasoline for your, for your motorbike. There is a gas tower at the edge of town that you're kind of nudged towards, but the solution is a bit more lateral. You, you have to trigger the alarm at the tower, hide in the shadows to allow the town sort of hover police to land and investigate, and then use a piece of pipe to, to siphon gas from their vehicle into a jerry can. It's not easy, but it, it works within the logic of the game and it works within the game's bespoke interface because it's slightly different from, from a conventional point-and-click game. When you hold your cursor over an item, it lets you interact with it using your eyes, your mouth, your hand or your feet. And, and this puzzle is a great teacher that the mouth tool is not purely used for talking to other characters, like it has a secondary function potentially. The game itself, though, as I mentioned, is you know it tells a great story and a big part of why I enjoy this so much is its narrative. It has a really incredible atmosphere. The story revolves around a main character called Ben, who is the leader of a biker gang. He's framed for the murder of, of the wealthy head of Corley Motors, which is a sort of Harley Davidson stand-in. And, and this world represents a kind of hybrid of technology. So you've got classic bikes riding alongside hover cars and other futuristic vehicles. Ben is introduced early on as someone who is very much stuck in their ways and is resistant to kind of technological change. Uh, and the game's desert setting does a lot to help showcase this divide with sort of modern structures and architecture contrasting the, the open sandy roads. As a game, it's it's just really well written as well. Like it, it has humour, like other LucasArts games, but it's not defined by the sort of madcap script or, or insult sword fighting of Sam and Max or Monkey Island. It's it's a much more human game with, with characters who speak and act like real people, even if the situation they find themselves in has elements of the absurd in there. Early on in the game, Ben meets a character called Maureen, um, who is a mechanic who helps him out after he takes like a nasty spill, having been set up shortly after the game's introductory act concludes. I was convinced as a young kid that this was going to be the game's love interest, because that's how most media seem to be. So you have, you know, your, your male protagonist, you have the baddies or all the kind of, you know, the bad characters. You've got the female character who is 
there is support and and with big air quotes is is like the reward at the end of the story but instead Maureen and Ben develop just an incredibly well-written friendship and and sometimes it takes hindsight to see just how forward-thinking media can be but I think a video game so not film or tv but a video game with with this story and these rounded characters delivered in 95 originally I think is hugely impressive the game is also really gorgeous to look at a few years back, it got a remaster, which I think is on all modern platforms now. Um, the remaster expanded its viewport to be widescreen. It smoothed out all of the pixel artwork to kind of a vector sheen. It looks decent, and it's it's remarkably respectful to the source art, but the pixels have, have so much more grit and character to them that, thankfully, as, as most of the best remasters do, like, like you said, Jonathan, with the Wonder Boy uh, mm. remake uh, quite a few weeks ago now, at the press of a button, you can just switch between styles. Mm. Um, and, and I love that games can be reissued in this way, so they feel more modern, but they also have the original package preserved as well, so you kind of know what it's come from and, and what it was at the time. The game sounds really good as well. Uh, it's got a really fantastic voice cast. Uh, ben is voiced by someone called Roy Conrad, who I think that is a name that just kind of fizzled out to nothing a few years on. But Mark Hamill voices the game's primary antagonist, Rip Berger. Brilliant. Um, and, and uh, Kath Susie, who's most famous as the voice of Phil and Lil in Rugrats, <laughs> uh, but also hundreds of other characters over the years, uh, voices Maureen. There's, there's a whole soundtrack of kind of hard rock and Americana, which is was recorded specifically for the game as well. And it all just fits really seamlessly. It's a really nice package for this world. It's got a kind of rich, treacle-thick atmosphere to it all. In, in preparation for this, I currently have a, a dynamic full-throttle theme on my PlayStation 4 home screen. Nice. Uh, and it's, it's really transportative. Like, I boot the machine up, and in the background, you've got kind of slide guitar and harmonica. There's kind of like some foreboding oboe in there. <laughs> um, and, and it sort of lures me into whatever I then choose to play. Whilst in the background behind my game icons, you've got a, a distant shot of the the dive bar that opens the game. Um, and depending on whether you play in the morning or night on your PlayStation, you get a morning or night version of the bar, nice. which, is, which is very nice. I really love stuff like that. <laughs> it's just small small bits, but I, I like kind of feeling part of part of these game worlds sometimes. Overall, I, I just think it's a really well packaged adventure. For me, Full Throttle has has got everything, and it's it's on a prestigious list of. Games that I do actually revisit every year or two, despite knowing the solutions to all the puzzles, uh, despite knowing all of the story and, and kind of the story beats. It's it's a narrative I enjoy, uh, and it's a world that I like spending time in alongside characters that I enjoy spending time with. Much of what I enjoy about games, as I mentioned at the top of this entry, tends to come from from their wider themes or particular mechanics or whatever else. But Full Throttle shows that I do still have a propensity for more traditional narrative linear titles. And it just seems that, to my taste, many of them just can't hold a candle to Full Throttle, my 11th <laughs> favourite video game of all time. So, yeah, a story game to finish Season 2. Amazing. Wonderful. I, I have so so little experience of, um, of LucasArts games um, and those like classic point-and-click games uh, for, for, the, for the same reason you did, is that I didn't have a computer that would run them, and then by the time I yeah. had a computer that would run them, there were more exciting modern games to play. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, I, I I mean, but I mean, I, I loved them. The re- weird thing is, like, for my experience of point and click games, <clears throat> I don't know where I got the love for them from, but that dictated pretty much the style of all the games that me and you made together as well. We just love yeah. making, you know, point and click games. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, wow, full throttle because I've never heard of it. Yeah never heard of it it's it's really good and and like i say it's 
it's a great one to start as well. Like for someone who is not that au fait with kind of the the more kind of uh, almost surreal elements of some point and click puzzle solving. Mm. Um, Full Throttle is, is far more straightforward. It's quite brisk. Like the whole game, even if you don't know what you're doing, is only four or five hours. Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of a, a really good entry point, I think, into this genre. If anyone says, oh, you know, I, I want to give point and click games a go. Yeah. Because even some of the other ones that are, are really highly regarded, like Monkey Island, without a guide in front of you, yeah. you will really struggle to get through it. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember that from from Simon the Sorcerer. Like, I I, yeah. I, 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 play, yeah. I played those, but I, but I played through them with a guide. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. of course I bloody did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Superb. Well, there we go. That is season two. First of all, an enormous thank you to everybody who's uh, stayed with us to this point, who has followed us along the way, people who have joined in recently. Thank you so much for listening and uh, supporting us in this journey. We're going to be taking a bit of a break uh, for a few weeks whilst I'm on paternity leave, but Chris and Minty are going to deliver a series of amazing bonus episodes, I've been promised. Uh, and then we will, <laughs> and then we will absolutely hit the ground running in January with our top ten favourite video games of all time, which will be season three. But for now, we've had another amazing eclectic trio of games. First of all, we had The Legend of Zelda: Oracle of Ages, and then we had The Binding of Isaac. Before finally, Full Throttle. There we go. If you've enjoyed this episode, or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes, please do share the podcast on social media. You can reach out to us as well. We've got all of our social media channels, YouTube, search for our three cents, Instagram at O3C podcast, Twitch at O3C podcast, facebook.com slash our three cents. You can find us on there and chat to us about these games, games that you're playing, or you can even ask us questions that you might like us to discuss in a future episode. Or you can reach out to us individually. I'm on Twitter at Jonathan Dunn. I'm at Chaz underscore Hodges. And I'm Clement underscore Boo. And if you're really enjoying what we're doing, please do check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash our3cents. Have a look at some of the amazing perks on offer there. And we will see you next time. Next time for who knows what. Uh, <laughs> and next year for season three, I can say for sure. But until that point, stay safe, be well, and... Goodbye. Farewell. Goodbye. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. And now a word from our sponsor. Ugh, I'm thirsty, but water just won't cut it right now. Hey, catch. Whoa, is this a can of cola? It is, because here at Podford University, our cafeteria has soda. Available on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere you get podcasts. Fans of video games, history, or video game history, will definitely want to listen to Retronauts. Each week, Bob Mackey and myself, that's Jeremy Parrish, dive into the stories behind the greatest games of the past and the history behind the hits of today. Check us out every Monday on the Greenlit Podcast Network.